innovative, often duplicated. When enough people get on the trend, I elevate it. Make it way harder for them to follow what I take. It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea. Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up. So just take your stuff, rake it up, and take the bus. Never fake the funk, you painted skunks. You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space, so the weight is up. Fight. Welcome back to another episode of Dirty White Belt Radio, everybody. My name is Jeff Shaw. Thank you for listening on a Sunday afternoon here from beautiful Hillsboro, North Carolina, the center of the known world. We've got a great show that I'm really excited to bring you, a couple of news items and a tremendous featured interview that we'll get to in just a second. I know a lot of you listening have experience with Eric Uresk, either as a nutrition coach or as a professional fighter. Maybe you've trained with him. I know a lot of people have North Carolina connections with Eric, who is a professional fighter, trainer, and nutrition guru, now living and coaching in Thailand, who has a tremendous a series of tremendous stories that he'll tell in a second. Uh, before we get to that, I got to tell you how you can get a hold of us. This is Dirty White Belt Radio. You can find us online at dirtywhitebelt.com. All the shows are going to be archived there as well as on demand at whupfm.org. The show originates from the studios of WHUP and is rebroadcast as a podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud where you can subscribe. And if you like us, leave us a review. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. We're on Twitter at DWB Radio and on Instagram at Dirty white belt please follow us there we're gonna we're gonna get right into the news segment today because there's a lot of news going on on all uh, on all aspects uh previewing a couple of things coming up we talk a lot about u.s grappling on the show uh, our favorite tournament tournament organization there's an opportunity to compete next weekend december 10th in richmond virginia at submission only richmond as i've said numerous times this is true submission only which means Two people step on the mat. Eventually, one of them gives up. It's not. Uh, no, there's no time limit, and hence no excuse. And uh, you know, a tremendous fun environment. Uh, I know that Richmond, Virginia, attracts a lot of different people from various types, from all, from all the way up from Northern Virginia, from down to South Carolina. And so, if you want to get a good competition in uh, next weekend, next Saturday, December 10th, uh, 2016, in Richmond. Uh, will be an opportunity for you to do so. If you're in the Triangle and you'd rather stay close to home, U.S. Grappling comes to Raleigh January 21st for the first tournament of the new year. That's always a fun affair. Uh, A lot of the local schools participate, and so you can register online for that at usgrappling.com. Another interesting thing that happened this week, you can find out about on our Facebook page, so one of world-class black belt Tom DeBlass, who is one of the one of the top grapplers uh, in, in, on earth, um, and has a robust social media following, uh, just taught a seminar at Derek T. C. Richardson School in Charlotte. I know that was really well attended. A lot of photos are coming out. Uh, he, apparently, he taught some terrific stuff. People are really excited about it. But one thing that happened in the aftermath that. I was pleased to see, and is causing a buzz on local Facebook pages, is uh, Betty Broadhurst, a, a purple belt under Gustavo Machado, and uh, and an inspiration to all of us. Betty, who is 60 years young, ended up having a role with Tom DeBlas after that seminar that DeBlas posted to his Facebook page. And as I as I speak to you, about 12 hours after this happened, it already has about 50,000 views on Facebook. So Betty is world famous, and might I add, deservedly so. So if you'd like to see a video of your friend and ours, Betty Broadhurst, who has also been on the podcast once or twice, uh, you can go to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash cagesideradio, or you can search for Dirty White Belt. So congratulations, Betty. It's good to see that. One other, one last thing I want to talk about before we get into the featured interview is that uh, it's promotion season. You know, uh, you never can tell. Jiu-Jitsu promotions are a funny thing. And a lot of times, 
you know, there, there are certain, every, every school does it differently. Some folks just promote whenever the mood strikes or whenever, whenever the instructor thinks you're ready. Other folks have different promotion ceremonies that happen once or twice a year. And so you'll see a lot of promotions happening in December. And a few of those happen that I want to shout out. Uh, before, before I talk about a couple local promotions, I do want to talk about uh, Valente Brothers down in Miami. Every year has a has two belt ceremonies, and the biggest one is in December. And because the Valente brothers have a, a sort of special relationship with the Hoist Gracie network, a lot of the Hoist Gracie students go down there to train, to teach. A lot of the instructors go down there. My instructor, Seth Champ, is down there, as well as I know Jake Whitfield is down there. Some of the other folks from the area, Travis Wheeler, a, re- a really good brown belt that trains with Jake, and uh, Blaine Turnmeyer, uh, a purple belt who runs uh, Team Rock Greensboro, are all down there. My man Tim Hufford from Chapel Hill Gracie Jiu-Jitsu is down there with Mozzie Haydari and uh, probably some folks I missed, but uh, th- those are always really exciting gatherings and I regret that I was unable uh, to join this year. So I do want to mention uh, that, at, you know, we, we've talked before about the Valencia Brothers Black Belt Test. That, as, as of this uh, broadcast, is still happening, so we don't know about Black Belt promotions yet. I'll post some congratulations to the folks that built up uh, as soon as news becomes available. But in the meantime, I did want to congratulate Seth for receiving, uh, Seth Champ for receiving the blue bar on his black belt uh, from Hoist Gracie himself. If you don't understand the significance of the blue bar, it's something only the Hoist Network does. And because Grandmaster Elio Gracie was focused like a laser on real-world self-defense and wore a blue belt for much of of his his later career to sort of emphasize that, um, the Hoist Network has started... uh, awarding blue bars on black belts to certified professors in authentic Gracie self-defense jiu-jitsu. And so Seth received his. I want to congratulate him for that. I know Travis Wheeler also got two new stripes on his brown belt, bringing him to three stripes. So congratulations, Travis. A couple of more, and and again, we'll keep you updated on promotions uh, as word of that comes in. Uh, A couple of local promotions that I know have happened already. You know, I know that the Forged Fitness uh, BJJ blowout is coming soon, but uh, but that hasn't happened yet. But Pendergrass Academy uh, under Gustavo Machado just promoted a couple of guys, well-deserved promotions. Um, ben Carey, who has competed at the Concussion Cast Carnival, has competed on uh, numerous other lo- local events, uh, just received his brown belt, really tremendous achievement, so congratulations to Ben. And Boo Holbrook, uh, one of the nicest guys in local jiu-jitsu and a dude who's just a pleasure to train with and, and to, uh, to take a class from, Pendergrass Academy's newest black belt. So congratulations to Boo. That's a, a great achievement, tremendous news that I was really happy to see. Um, and I know that other promotions are going are gonna to continue to happen. So if some of them happened that I missed, I apologize. But those were a couple that I wanted to, to, to highlight. You know, brown and black belt, uh, uh, you know, tremendous achievements. So congratulations to those guys. Without further ado, let's get right into the featured interview. Now, if you're not familiar with Eric Uresk, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. So Eric's the head wrestling coach at Phuket Top Team in Thailand. He's wrestled and practiced various martial arts for pretty much his whole life, as you'll hear him talk about. You'll hear about how he talked. You'll hear about how he got into fighting and all the various martial arts that he's practiced and how he came to do that. He's been a professional fighter in a variety of capacities, from MMA to now Muay Thai, taking Muay Thai fights in Thailand. I first became aware of Eric as he, during his role as a nutrition guru. Uh, Cody Malte, who he talks about a little bit in the interview, has been working with Eric on nutrition stuff for years that's optimized fight nutrition training. And he's somebody that's very thoughtful about and uh, interested in the best way to fuel the human body for combat. And so you can see how we would be interested in that. And he has some great tips about that in this interview. 
Um, there are also, during one time of his, li- of his life, Eric was also a legendary bouncer in New York. He's from Long Island originally, and so he talks about that. And he tells you a couple of hysterical bouncing stories, including one that we're pretty glad that the, uh, that the statute of limitations uh, is, is, is elapsed on, we think. So please stay tuned for that. All in all, I had about a 50-minute conversation with Eric about training, about coaching, about his philosophy on giving advice, about how he handles situations in his academy when he's teaching wrestling, when he's training jiu-jitsu, about his time training with uh, one, of the, one of the greatest competitors of all time, Leticia Hibero, now training with Olavo Abreu, a black belt directly under Carlson Gracie. I talked to him about the difference between training and competing in the U.S. versus training and competing in Thailand, and just a tremendous uh, amount of stories. So without any further ado, I'm going to get right into our our featured interview with Eric Uresk. Our featured interview today is brought to you by Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Company. Toro BJJ produces the highest quality gis, rash guards, and grappling supplies for every Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioner. You can check them out online at torobjj.com. Our thanks to Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for making our featured interview possible. So let's get to it. So Eric, how did you first get started in the martial arts? Oh man, I was obsessed with fighting since... uh... Since I can remember, I, I remember seeing like um, the Karate Kid and and Rocky uh, as a real young kid, and uh, and I was obsessed. I just really thought there was something about fighting that attracted me. Um, I, I was addicted to movies like Bloodsport. I've probably seen that movie like a hundred times, um, and, and any martial arts movie I could uh, I could find or get my hands on, I was obsessed. But my family was uh, was too poor to. Um, to do martial arts lessons when I was a kid. So uh, I would like get books from the book fair that were like martial arts books and just try to like copy, I'm talking like five or six years old and just try to copy the moves in the basement with my brother. And um, and then I would just, I would fight in the neighborhood as, as often as I could um, <laughs> uh, with whoever I could uh, just because I just really enjoyed um, uh, fighting and it, for me it was like an outlet it wasn't really like a good thing um, at the time but I, I was just I was obsessed uh, I, I don't know why and uh, I got into wrestling uh, for the short time that I was in uh, high school that uh, that had sports and uh, found my way to judo uh, at a certain point and it's sort of that that sort of is all uh, a story of its own but that's how I got into martial arts I've been obsessed with it since I was a kid um, and the first martial arts I was really introduced to were uh, wrestling and, and judo. In terms of jiu-jitsu, I know that you, you your professor was Leticia Hibero. Is that right? Was um, while I was in um, while I was in the states. Now it's uh, Alavo Abreu, who was directly under Carlson Gracie Senior, who's passed. So Carlson Gracie Junior is now now the head of uh, Team Carlson Gracie. But uh, my professor studied under uh, Carlson Senior. And so when you were in San Diego, you were training with Leticia. And now that you're in Thailand, uh, you're training with Olavo Abreu. How did you come to, to move to Thailand? What, what, what inspired that decision? Uh, I was living in San Diego and uh, training at Alliance MMA. And I was doing jiu-jitsu with, uh, with Leticia, Morongo, and uh, the rest of the Humaita team, which is uh, quite big in San Diego, actually. Uh, quite a few affiliates of Humaita. Uh, and I was just getting stale. I was having a hard time getting fights in, uh, in California uh, or anywhere in the U.S. for that matter. Uh, some injuries and last-minute cancellations and fights and just 
all the things that are part of, uh, of, of that world. And I, I needed a change. And uh, I had a couple of buddies that were out in Thailand. And I just got the thought of coming out here and checking it out. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I get an idea and then I put some energy into it. And, um, and sometimes it just happens and, and I move quickly. And, and literally within a month of that idea, uh, I was living in Thailand. I talked to the owner. He told me to come out, that there was an opening for the wrestling job. And, uh, and that was it. Month later, I'm living in Thailand. So, as long as we're talking about Thailand, let's let's just go go there because I know that you wound up taking Muay Thai fights professionally in Thailand. Have you done Thai fights before you moved there? I had zero professional striking background, other than just you know whatever training I had done in MMA. So you moved to Thailand. You take up Muay Thai, and you end up you end up fighting at Lumpani Stadium. Is that right? No, 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 <laughs> not Lupini. Uh, just, just the local stadiums in, um, in Thailand. Like, I'd love to make it sound like, like, um, you know, like it was more than it was. Um, I really just wanted a challenge, and I wanted to do have fun with fighting and and with something that I, I didn't expect too much from myself. So I just kind of went in really stress free uh, to the first one, and. Uh, um, I had no idea who I was fighting, anything like that. Uh, ended up being a guy with a, a few uh, pro Muay Thai fights, and it, it was a blast, man. Like the whole training for it and, and everything was was really fun, and I, I had a good performance, and uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I, I plan on fighting Muay Thai again, um, probably sometime in the spring. What is the biggest difference about training in America as opposed to training overseas in Thailand? Uh, heat, <laughs> heat, and humidity is. Um, is for me is the biggest thing uh you know as far as like mma training not all that much because uh I, i'm the head coach at the gym that i'm at now so uh, i run things according to the standard that i i developed at alliance mma which you know it's a, it's a it's a pretty notable gym as far as mixed martial arts is concerned as far as training for thai boxing the thai way it's in my opinion, it's not the most efficient way of training. There's a lot of overtraining. A lot of everything is like the the more you overdo it, the better. I, I feel like in the Thai um, eyes, they're they're not even in their culture. Like uh, efficacy is not uh, very valued in anything that they do. Uh, you know, one of the, the the sort of the sayings in Thailand is like "sabai sabai." You know, it's kind of like relax or whatever. You know, um, and so. Not that they're relaxed about the training, but they don't. The methodology is not very advanced. They've probably been training the same way for a very, very, very long time. And so that probably makes a lot of really tough guys, but not necessarily the uh, is not necessarily the most scientifically valid method for everyone. No, and you know when you're training in a certain method since you're a child, uh, that's all you know. Uh, but there's a reason most of them don't fight. You know, even past their early twenties, uh, because the wear and tear on the body is just too much. So, for a foreigner to come into this later in life, it's much, but they haven't been doing it their whole life. Uh, but I, I definitely tears down the body. Like it, it's hard. Like the guys that do fight, uh, you know, later into the late twenties, thirties, they don't train the same way. That they'll, they'll, you know, uh, a couple of like the legends. Like at our gym, we have Lodzilla. He's he's one of the greatest of all time, uh, and he's still active. Very, very small guy, but he'll fight guys much larger than him. You know, he finds out he has a fight coming, and he'll start running, hitting pads, and, you know, uh, maybe he'll do some very light sparring here and there, but nothing crazy, and that's it. He's just been in so many fights. Like, he just has to make sure, like, he's got 
decent conditioning and that's it. He, he really looks at it as like a game. And uh, a lot of the ties do. A lot of the ties look at it not so much as a fight, even though you can get seriously injured, but it, it is more of a game to them. So to lose is not, not such a big deal like it is to a Westerner. You think very hard about preparation. And one of the ways that, that we got to know each other was through your work in nutrition. And so sure. in terms of preparing somebody for combat and combat sports, how important is nutrition? I think it's huge. You know, there's some guys that can get away with not putting a lot of attention into their nutrition. Uh, are they getting the most out of themselves? I don't know. I really, you know, to me, if you're going to drive your car like a Lamborghini, then you, you need to put the right fuel in it. Uh, that, that analogy makes sense and, and not put, you know, just regular crap gas uh, in the vehicle that you're going to drive, uh, you know, really, really hard and, and demand quite a bit from. So, I think nutrition plays a huge role, uh, especially, you know, not so much in supplementation, which is important, but, but really in, in, in just eating the right foods, eating good foods, not, you know, not getting, not eating fried crap, getting, you know, getting the carbs when you need them. Um, you know, when you start talking about weight cutting, a lot of that is how much of what do I need in order to perform the best, but stay, you know, at, at the, um, the lightest I can without hindering my performance. Uh, sleep, uh, sleep hygiene is really important as far as, you know, how much attention do I put into the quality of sleep that I'm getting and, and, uh, rest and, and, you know, lifestyle I think is, uh, a lot to do with it, but everybody's different. I mean, you have maniacs like, you know, John Jones who just, you know, you know, at the peak of their career were, were partying like rock stars a week out from their fights, you know? So, um, I know a lot of guys from Australia that will drink through camp. You know, they don't get wrecked, but they, they'll drink through camp, and, and you know, it relaxes them. And they all have their, um, you know, their their method to doing things. So, is there? I don't think there's a perfect way to do anything when it comes to fighting because there's no even martial arts in general. There's no guarantees, right? And there's nothing set. And uh, sometimes when you're so meticulous about details, uh, I think when all the details don't go, uh, or, or all things don't go as as, uh, as scheduled in the actual competition. A lot of people that are uh, very too rigid, they they sort of start to fall apart. So um, as I've moved more into coaching, I start to kind of realize that there's there's no cookie cutter way to do anything, and a lot of it's by feel. Hmm. You know, th that's really interesting about guys falling apart when they don't get the result they want. One of the things that I always tell folks is that results-oriented thinking is a great way to be wrong and that it's better to think about having a good process. And part of the reason that I worked really well with you is you were able to give me these principles, give me these, these you know, this sort of template for here's what you should be doing, here's how you should be eating. And, and, and then we applied that to my specific goals. So uh, is that how you work with most of your clients? Yeah, yeah, because everybody's different and everybody responds different, and that, that's kind of how I try to work with everybody on on, on every basis. You know, um, these are the ways that I know work um, for most people, and so I sort of, you know, I give them sort of broad suggestions. Mm -hmm. So we, I was introduced to you through Cody Malte, and who is also a professional fighter, high level guy, has World Series of Fighting fights, Jiu Jitsu black belt. How did you meet Cody? Cody came to train with me or, or my gym at, uh, at Alliance and uh, came down to spar and he was a tough guy. You know, a hundred, a thousand faces passed through that door, guys just coming in to train and 
taking little training holidays or whatever. Um, I say holiday now since I've been overseas for a while. It's no longer a vacation. But uh, they take these little training holidays. And, um, yeah, and so, uh, yeah, I just happened to remember him. He hit me up online uh, randomly. And, and uh, I don't remember if he hit me up just for, for weight cutting or what. But, um, but, yeah, I started working with him and got good results with him. And I actually ended up, through you and him, uh, developing – a uh, pretty good relationship with a lot of people in uh, in, in North Carolina. Yeah, we've got to get you down for a North Carolina seminar sometimes. So hopefully, the I know, dude. I'm, I'm dying. Once I have a long trip to the states, uh, that's on the list. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of things that you could teach us about uh, nutrition, fight science, and gentlemanly behavior. Uh, which, yes. <laughs> which leads me to my next question: Where did where did the nickname come from, Eric the Gentleman? Oh man, so uh, I used to I work with. Uh, so while I was bouncing, I used to work with uh, one of my best friends still to this day, uh, this guy named Eric Ott. Um, and, uh, man, him and I, we hit it off right away. He's, um, he's sort of like the polar opposite. He, he's, uh, he's tall, blonde. I'm short, dark hair. Uh, he's, you know, um, both sort of very dry humored. And um, we were the two smallest bouncers uh, in the Hamptons in New York. And, uh, you know, the way he would, we would speak to people, um, but we could speak, I don't know, kind of like, like, like proper English, uh, amongst a, a sea of meatheads. And, uh, so we just started referring to ourselves as gentlemen and, and it kind of stuck because it didn't, because it wasn't really true. Um, it was the farthest thing from a gentleman at the time. It was like, really like a, like, Less Guido than most of the Guidos at that age, but uh, yeah, I grew up on Long Island, so uh, you got to forgive me. Uh, and uh, to, to the other Eric, he was not a Guido at all. I, I've had my moments um, where I look back at pictures and I'm like, oh my god. But yeah, uh, so we were less Guido than the um, than the sea of Guidos we worked amongst, mm -hmm. and uh, and I just started calling myself a gentleman as a joke because I wasn't. Uh, I was the farthest thing of a gentleman. I mean. At that time, I started bouncing. I was about a year removed from, like, you know, being a, a career criminal since being a teenager and, like, kind of getting my life together and, uh, you know, uh, getting into martial arts and, and kind of putting my life into that. And bouncing was just where I made, you know, money to, uh, to sort of uh, uh, take on that lifestyle. I, I never really had a real job, so I would bounce and train. What was the most fun bouncing job you ever had? Oh man, hands down, uh, the Neptune's Beach Club. In uh, it was in East Quag, New York. It was basically uh, the only thing of its kind on the East Coast at the time. So it was a, a club on the Atlantic Ocean, out in the Hamptons. Uh, really beautiful beach. It was a giant sort of uh, dock and beach house. I guess maximum capacity was around three thousand. Um, and, uh, it was just madness. It was, if you're talking about the, the club scene in New York, um, I mean, I was really at the tail end of the, the, the really good years, but if people that were around in the nineties and the, um, late nineties, early two thousands, uh, and, and it sort of died just about as I was coming in, it was the last good years. But, uh, yeah, that place was was awesome, and and, and uh, it was just a time of like complete excess and uh, 
a lot of like uh, the juice hut culture was huge. Like that wasn't my thing. I was you know 160 pounds soaking wet, but but I, I, I just happened to train, so I was allowed to work and uh, um, a lot of beautiful women. And you know when you're that young, I mean that's that's important to you and uh, just partying and having a good time. As a smaller guy, did you notice that club meatheads would try to start things with you more than they would the other bouncers? Uh, yeah, for about the first couple months, I was a bouncer, and uh, you know, I, I would get tried pretty often because I worked at the door, and um, you know, it turned a couple of guys upside down, and, and, and uh, I, I only hit one person like with an actual strike the, the entire seven eight years I bounced. Um, uh, the rest of the time, it was pretty much wrestling and jujitsu, you know, throwing guys on the floor, and then either holding them or just subduing them uh, with a choke or a joint lock if need be. But yeah, I would get I would get tried all the time. But to be fair, I was also 24 when I started, like full of piss and vinegar, um, and I would look for it at that age. Like you know, uh, I was not a very like I wasn't a martial artist at that time. I was still pretty much just a fighter, like a guy who trained, and you know, not the best human being in the world. Um, you know, I wouldn't any seriously hurt anybody, but I definitely didn't mind showing off in front of a crowd of people for sure. What what uh, can you give me an example of showing off in front of a crowd of people? So let's say there was a couple of like real big guys, and uh, you know, I, I maybe I thought they were selling drugs or they were doing something they they shouldn't be doing. I'd walk up to the biggest one, I'd poke him in the chest, and then smack his drink out of his hand, and then try to get him to make a move at me. So I could turn them upside down because I knew like a million people would be watching. Did the, how do how would the crowd react when a situation like that would uh, go down? Go insane! Thank God, like you're talking like 2005, so uh, camera phones weren't huge back then. They might have just started like, you know, if you really had a nice phone, you had a camera and a video on your phone and like really crappy quality, you know. Um, so thank God. I mean, uh, one night I was uh. This is towards the sort of the tail end of my, my bouncing career. Um, I'm working at a club in Southampton, nice place, and uh, there's a Russian guy in there, roided out of his mind, probably on crystal meth, and uh, he, was, he was a big guy. He had um, thrown the owner on the floor, who, who was also a big guy, uh, got subdued and put out, and came back to life like after being choked out by, by about three or four bouncers. Um, really, really hostile, didn't speak much English, and uh, I, I came out into the parking lot, and, uh, and he made a move at me, and I, uh, I threw a head kick uh, and landed like right on his neck, and it was like a highlight pro cop knockout. Like, the dude just went down, and there was a line full of people and like taxis, and I actually almost got in trouble for that. Um, the statute of limitations is almost up, I'm pretty sure, but uh, I'm not, not too concerned. I'm in Thailand. They can come and get me if they want. Uh, we'll hold yeah. the show until after the statute of limitations is up. Is up. Yeah, it's all good. I don't care. Um, yeah, so the dude went out, and I had to talk to the cops the next day. And I was just, yeah, the guy made a move at me, and I subdued him. And, uh, you know, he got scratched up because there was gravel in the driveway. I mean, um, yeah, it was just it was an in, it, instinctive move. He went in, and I just went on autopilot. So it's the only time I ever hit anybody uh, bouncing. Do you ever miss bouncing, or is that a time in your life that you've moved past? You know what? Every now and then, I'll I'll, I'll miss it um, a little bit. I, I more miss my friends and the, like the camaraderie. Uh, the thing about bouncing, at least at, uh, at that point in time and in, in, in that era, was. 
we all worked at a bunch of different clubs together, and we were part of a company. So it was like a uh, like a fraternity. Uh, I still keep in touch with most of the guys that I, that I worked with back then. I mean, I've had lifelong friendships, and uh, um, but a lot of us, you know, we're, we're I'm 35 now. A lot of these guys were older than me when we started. Um, so you know, these guys have families and stuff like that, and I. I've just matured way past it. Like, I still like to go out every now and then, but, man, it's not uncommon for me to be in bed uh, around 11, 12 on a, on a, on a, week, on a weekend, uh, whereas I wouldn't leave the house until, you know, 1 o'clock in the morning if I was going out and, you know, after hours and, um, and all that. So, you know, those wild days are, are, are long behind me. I, and I don't want to hit anybody, honestly. Like, uh, <laughs> you know... Um, uh, I, unless I'm getting paid to hit somebody, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to deal with the, the violence and the nonsense. I'd rather just, uh, you know, keep that in the ring of the cage or, or, or on the mat. And um, I'm, I'm pretty past all the uh, any of the excitement and fun that bouncing had to offer when I was young doesn't really excite me anymore. If I, if I could put it best. So you mentioned that the martial arts have played sort of a role in your own process of maturity, and I'm wondering what you've oh, learned. Yeah. Yeah, so so why is that, and what have you learned from each of the martial arts that you've trained? So, uh, as a kid, I was uh, not a good kid. I was a, like really like a, a, a career criminal, a lot of problems, a lot of emotional problems. Um, you know, was in and out of uh, psych wards, jails, all that kind of stuff. Homeless as a teenager, and, and uh, you know, I was not on a good road. But I had wrestled a little bit in high school, and I loved it, and, uh, and I was kind of like natural at it. And uh, while I was leaving or graduating a, uh, a group home, I started training judo in a place that was nearby that I could walk to. Uh, and so initially, martial arts in general gave me an outlet. No, no one martial art taught me like philosophically more than the other. But you know, initially it gave me an outlet and something to feel good about as a person that didn't have anything to feel good about. Um, which is important, but that doesn't last forever. And, and, uh, and so that became like martial arts became, uh, like an ego thing for me that I could fight and it made me special. And so like, I sort of clung to that and I clung for, to that for a little bit longer than I could, uh, or than I should have then. Um, uh, and it stopped serving me, you know, uh, once competing and training becomes about the ego, uh, you start. You stop developing as a martial artist, and I, I've seen this happen. And I, and I wish I would have picked up on this a lot earlier. But I try to pass this on to the guys that I train now. Um, so I'd be the guy that you know would win all the time in the gym, and I would never give an inch, and um, just not not a great training partner, really. Uh, not that I would injure anybody, uh, although I was a bit of a goon when I first started uh, BJJ. Um, but I just didn't want to be vulnerable in martial arts. And I started to see that, like, uh, not just in martial arts, but in my personal life and uh, and all over. It was like this all-pervading thing that I needed to be in control at all times. And the thing about, you know, competition and fighting in martial arts is that you're not in control all the time. And if you don't get comfortable being uncomfortable, you're not going to be very successful um, in martial arts. That's why sometimes I, I envy guys that don't have a lot of, natural ability that had to work hard to get good because they almost have an advantage mentally because uh, nothing was easy for them. Uh, I think when you you start off really athletically gifted, um, uh, it can be a curse sometimes. So it's been a slow 
uh, chiseling away of, uh, of the ego is, is, is the best way I could put it, uh, what martial arts has done for me. And it's a continual process. What's the biggest difference for you between competing and coaching, you know, as you sort of transition to more of a coaching role? Coaching is a lot more selfless. You don't get the, uh, the fame and the bright lights and, 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 uh, or any of that. Uh, you know, it's, it can be a bit thankless, uh, but it's also really rewarding in a lot of ways. Um, I just, I've, I've really got to a point where like, yeah, passing, I, I just have a great passion for passing that knowledge on, uh, not just technically, um, but you know, the mental and spiritual side of martial arts. Um, I think it's, it's, uh, I don't know. I just, I've, I've really, uh, I've really taken to it and, um, I've been afforded a good opportunity where I'm at now to, to sort of uh, to be the head coach of uh, of a pretty established gym here in Asia, and I have I have offers you know all over the world that you know gyms that want me to come coach, and, and it's cool. Uh, I think fighting's awesome, and uh, you know I got to a point where I was just happy with myself, and I, I didn't feel like I needed anything to, to to prove anything anymore. And I think once that goes, as a, as a fighter especially, not so much for I'm still going to compete. In, you know, BJJ and Muay Thai, but as far as MMA for me, once that goes, I, I don't think you should fight anymore. You know, I think you almost need a little bit of a chip on your shoulder to, uh, to be successful as a, uh, as a fighter. Like one of the things that, that I noticed, you know, in terms of people that make the transition from high level competition to coaching is you, as you mentioned, the rewards are different. Like, you know, having a student succeed, and I know you've had really good friends fight and be successful in the UFC, people that you've trained and cornered, like, uh, there's a different reward to seeing someone that you work with succeed than succeeding yourself. Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, what what I've come to learn, and, and it's not to get too hippie-ish on you, I think the really being happy comes from more selfless acts. Because um, I know a lot of people that are super successful, uh, not just in the fight game, uh, but I know people at the top of the fight game. I don't know how happy they are, you know. Um, and I know a lot of people that are really, really successful in a lot of different endeavors. And success doesn't equal happiness uh, all the time. And it doesn't equal happiness in coaching either. But I think giving generally lends itself to a, a more um, sort of lasting, lasting happiness and, and peacefulness, uh, at least for me. Well, I'm from the Northwest originally, so genetically I'm a hippie. Don't worry about uh, de delving into hippiness. <laughs> so for me, yeah, it's, it's you know the, the the less concerned I am with myself, the happier I am. It's not always an easy thing to do uh, because I naturally have a large ego and I have to kind of uh, chip away at it constantly. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, I, I just yeah, it's it's a rewarding thing for me, and uh, and I just have a real passion for for you know coaching almost in all its aspects, not just that. I really like getting into the finer details of like, um, you know, of basics and, you know, I, I'll, man, I can go on tangents about the smallest, smallest details about things and how important, but not just that and, and you know, taking care of guys' heads and, you know, thinking, because you can't coach everybody the same either. That's the other thing. Some guys are different puzzles. I mean, I got a guy right now who's a super gifted athlete. Um, I can't get him to be mean enough in training. And so it's a... Uh, it's actually, you know, and that's a different puzzle. I have some guys that aren't as gifted athletes, but if I tell them, you know, to, to, to go put somebody down, they'll do it without batting an eye. So, uh, you know, everybody's different and you got to, 
you know, each guy's a different puzzle, and you, to try to solve it, it's uh, it, it's it's a it's a challenge and it's fun. I want to talk to you a little bit about your time training with Leticia Hibero because she might sure. she's arguably the best woman jiu-jitsu competitor of all time and also an incredibly yeah. successful coach who is, you know, and and so I'm I'm interested in how like was there a lot of training was there a lot of training between the genders when you were there did women train with men? Oh uh, yeah, tons. Like I, I would um I don't know if you know who Anna Carolina is. I do. Um, yeah, yeah. So I got to train with her quite a bit. Um we had kind of like similar body styles and uh you know, she was phenomenal. Uh, you know, she competed at a high level. I think she actually doubled like Gabby Garcia as a purple belt. Uh, I think there's like a famous video of that. It's pretty pretty cool. But um, yeah, I got to train with Bia and uh, a lot of the lower belt world champions uh, that were at the gym at the time, whose, whose names elude me. But yeah, I've actually trained with a lot of different women uh, in MMA and BJJ. Uh, so yeah, it's it's uh. It's interesting to watch that grow, and Leticia is uh, is an amazing person, um, such a good coach. She definitely like, man. They used to make me start on my back all the time there, which I liked, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was cool, uh, you know, training at her gym and teaching wrestling there for for the short time that I was there, about a year, you know, getting into to BJJ, and uh, uh, I dug it, um, you know, and her. her uh, Boyfriend and partner uh, Morongo is uh, fantastic as well, and uh, doesn't get enough credit for his skill as a as a jiu-jitsu player. I think he just won uh, uh, Masters, actually. Awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. So he, he, he was um, he was so good, man. Really, really good. I used to have really fun time training with both of them. Uh, great people. Um, you know, uh, got to teach a class in front of Hoyler, which was pretty nerve-wracking, but but also exciting. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a good time. What do you think, like, what what differences and what similarities do you notice between Leticia Hibero's teaching style and Alavo Abreu's teaching style? Are there commonalities? Are there differences? Uh, Alavo is much more relaxed in his approach. So, you know, and I, and I, I, I dig both for a certain, certain reason. So when you're a Humaita academy, especially so close to where Hoyler is and he drops in, like you got to follow all the, you know the, the rules of that come along with being a Gracie gym. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with with a lot of that, but um, I think only white and blue geese and the beginning and end of class are very very formal. Uh, and so the the Carlson Gracie side is a little bit more relaxed um, on on some of the traditions, but they have sort of have their own traditions. You know, it's like almost like them being relaxed about some of that stuff is almost like a tradition in itself. Leticia had a very, she would show techniques in a very like detailed and specific way. And, and a lavo sort of just allows me to explore jujitsu myself. And then he sort of will give me, give me things, uh, as I go along, you know, that he sees in my game. And then the other professors that are here in, uh, in Thailand as well, a bunch of, uh, guys from Brazil that are, that are here assisting a lot more. there's always different guys coming in and we always have like you know world class black belts pit stopping in so, which is nice too so um, yeah they both definitely have their you know their, their unique little way and uh, you know I dig it. Um, it you know it took me a little while to adjust um, but not long I'm really kind of falling into it I'm, I'm really becoming like a jiu-jitsu nerd like I never thought it would happen but like I really like the gi now. I've been wearing it like four or five days a week, um, and uh, you know, gi 
train jujitsu and surf now that I'm, I'm not really fighting anymore. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's weird. I became that guy. It's, it's kind of what I planned on. Total jujitsu nerd lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with training jujitsu, eating good food and surfing in Thailand. I mean, yeah, no, it's not the worst life in the world, but yes, yeah, it's just strange, you know, because of, like such an in, like intense guy, uh, for the most part. So to, to kind of, you know, relax and, you know, just enjoy jujitsu and whatnot. I mean, I still, I'm still pretty mean in, in the gi, but, you know, um, you know, uh, my professor likes it. Alaba loves it. You know, like, you know, it's, it's a respectful mean, but it's, I, I train intense and, you know, I like, like, like to get in there and mix it up. And I definitely like, uh, rolling more than drilling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Speaking of technical meanness, bouncing, and uh, martial arts films, uh, uh, that reminds me of the line from Roadhouse, you know, be nice until it's time not to be nice. Yes. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. I I usually ask people what their toughest day of training was, and I'm really interested in your answer as someone who's trained a lot of different martial arts, has trained in America, has trained overseas, and so I'm curious, is that a wrestling day, is that a jiu-jitsu day, is that a Thai day, or, yeah. Yeah, wrestling is the, I want to call it the Cadillac of martial arts training. Wrestling is... um is the hardest day by far uh you know even though i'm comfortable doing it it's never easy even if like i'm the best guy in the room that day at wrestling um it's still not easy because you still know you still got to push yourself really really hard and so yeah wrestling is by far the hardest i mean uh when i was at alliance we sort of like at the peak of our success too my head coach at the time really was not a big fan of jiu-jitsu like he you know submission defense is important but at the time, he saw it as you know the least important part of MMA, past basic defense and, and, and positioning. So we basically sparred twice a week and wrestled the other three days. I definitely took years off my life for sure because it, it was the room was filled with just animals and and it, you know no easy day, nobody giving an inch and and you know sparring and wrestling like uh, man. Uh, Death, so much wear and tear on my body. Like I was like, we got to stop this. Like, like, I, I know jujitsu is not the hardest day, but it's necessary. And I don't know how long we, many of us could keep this up. And uh, you know, we're all we're hurt all the time. I think because of that. But I mean, you, you live and you learn. So, are there particular days that stand out? Like, oh man, there was that day we ran these stairs. There was this day that they brought in this monster guy. Um, yeah, I mean, there was days where like. You know, it would be one of Dominic Cruz's, like, title camps. And, you know, Brandon Vera would be running practice and be like, all right, we're going to wrestle till someone quits, you know. So I don't know if you ever wrestle till the other person quits, especially in a room full of people that don't quit. But it, it's, it, it sucks, dude. It's because you, you got to keep going. You know, guys were, like, throwing each other in cubby holes and trying to push each other under the cage. It was, it was nasty. Um and just just hard days, um, physically exhausted. And you're, you're you're already tired from the rest of the week. You know, body's broken down. Definitely didn't get enough rest. And, and um, yeah, there was just man. Some of those some of those wrestling practices were were absolutely grueling. As a coach now, um, what what are the most common mistakes that you see students making? I'm thinking particularly of grappling students, and not like brand new guys, but people that that are like maybe they've got a blue belt, maybe they've been training a year. Like what either a training method mistake or what what most common mistakes do you think those folks make? Uh, as far as grappling, yeah, man, people have really bad fundamentals in general. Um, 
which I, I don't know if it's instruction or whatnot. I'm a, uh, a hound on details. Like I'm, I'm obsessed with correct details and correct basics. And, um, like I, I, I do a lot of, you know, I do a lot of flashy stuff when, when I'm, you know, training, competing, whatever. But, um, but man, basics and, and mass advanced basics are, you know, that's where the mastery is found, uh, you know, in my opinion. So, um, man, yeah, guys have a lot of holes in their basics in, 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 uh, um, in, in grappling, especially just, um, positional awareness and, you know, basic submission application. And I think basics are, are, are really, really lacking. Um, uh, especially in mixed martial arts. There's, a there, there's definitely, um, if you're not Brazilian, there's a large degree of, uh, of disrespect towards jiu-jitsu from a lot of MMA guys. Not all, but it, it exists. Why do you think that is? I think because the current nature of MMA is... That, MMA right now is mostly a striking game, right, at the highest level. Um, there is some, you know, takedown defense is probably more important than, you know, working on the ground. Uh and since the takedown defense has gotten so good, um, you see a lot less groundwork. So it's just it's sort of the cycles of the way things go. So you know, if we flat flash forward a year or so, you know, it might be where all right, guys are figuring out like the takedown defenses and changing up strategies, and and, and, and you know, it might go back to the ground where guys are going to have to sharpen up their ground skills again. I remember when I first started, you know, even thinking about this, and it was still no holds barred. Like MMA didn't even exist at this time. Uh, if you were a jiu-jitsu black belt, like it was, all, you were, you won the fight. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like you definitely won the fight for sure at this time, for the most part. You know, the guys didn't have advanced, you know, cross training really going on yet. I mean, they were cross training, but like the, the merging of the styles hadn't really meshed and, and and been seamless the way it is now. Now it's you know everything flows so well together. So um, and jiu-jitsu is hard to learn. So if you're a great striker and, and generally guys that have a good understanding of that rhythm and timing, the slower technical work of the grounds, I think, gives them trouble. I think maybe their brain just has a hard time picking up on that stuff. Um, and so, like, most people don't like to do things they're not good at, you know? They like doing stuff they're good at. Um, and I think there's a bit of a fixed mindset around jujitsu, uh, you know? Um, and I don't, I love jujitsu, and I don't, a hundred percent disagree with them i think that if your wrestling sucks then yeah like um you know you, it's more important to be able to get up off your back than it is to try to submit somebody because it's very easy to in a fight to stay away from submissions um unless the guy's a real specialist off his back for the most part but i, I think there's a give and take there i think that guys should pay a little bit more attention to the uh, to the details of jiu-jitsu and um but it's so hard, man. There, there's so many different dynamics, and there's just not enough hours in the day to get like great at everything. I mean, th- that is the truth. There's all, and but that's one of the fascinating things about martial arts, too, yeah. right? There's always more to learn. Yeah, there's, it never ends. It never ends. It never ends. That's why I'm having so much fun right now with the gi. Like, um, you know, I, I could get by um, as a brown belt just off uh, a really good no gi game and, and a heavy, you know, top game. But I didn't want to be one of those guys that earns his black belt um, for his no-gi game. Or, or I really wanted to be an efficient, like, solid black belt. You know, like, good grip game, good off my back, etc. So I, I've really um, thrown myself into, like, learning 
the, you know, the art of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, um, you know, with the gi, and uh, I'm having a blast doing it right now because I'm just, you know, it's it's uh, it's new. I'm learning new stuff and, and, you know, having a good time. So, Do you set goals for yourself personally? And at this stage in your career, what are those goals if you do? So uh, my goal right now is, is, you know, I'm very, very close to, uh, to getting my black belt. Uh, I my professor just wants me to compete against some black belts in the gi. Um, so that's one. Uh, I'd like to start competing in submission grappling events a little bit more uh, uh, steadily. I've always you know, been a good grappler, um, and I just want to kind of go out there and test it and have a little fun with that. Um, so those are kind of like the goals right now. And then I, I set other little goals um, you know, along the way, um, short-term goals, you know, like get better off my back with the gi um i'll set goals around like certain grip sequences you know get better at this and um stopping different passes and whatnot so i think like you know i, I try to go into each training session with small with a small goal um that lead up to the bigger goals what well you know we do have super fight events down in north carolina submission grappling yeah. and so when we get you down here for a seminar we'll have to package one of those and get you and oh, get you an great. opponent I want to ask you a couple of questions about technical advice for people because, like, obviously you have a strong background in wrestling. You coach wrestling at a high level. What? But a lot of jiu-jitsu people get into it when they're older. And sure. so I'm curious what advice you would have for somebody who maybe starts at 35 and is like, well, I would love to have good takedowns, but I also don't want the wear and tear on my body, especially as I get older with injuries that will keep me off the mats. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, everybody's got to decide, you know, what's important to them. Um, so I – think you know wrestling especially even like fights fight training the injuries all the time come from wrestling because it's full blast um and there's a lot of crazy high speed scrambles and um they're not always in full control so i would say start with drilling and make sure that your body is physically capable to handle like just drilling and then slowly 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 get into live training um, and man, it, it's really about the instructor, um, how much attention they're paying. Um, like, you know, if I got a guy on the mat that I know, you know, I'm not, or, or I'm not sure about his physical capabilities, I might not let him go live for a while. And if I do, it might be with a more advanced student that can sort of work with him and not kill him, you know? So yeah, it's, you have to, it's got to be with a good instructor that's not going to put you with somebody that's that's uh, going to be on an ego trip. Um, it's sort of the same thing like when you get women training with like goon guys, you know, and the girl is technically superior um, and gets the guy, you know, in some kind of arm lock or omoplata and the guy rather than tap will pick the girl up and slam her on her head, you know. Um, so you, you want to avoid that situation uh, in, in wrestling at all costs with uh, – people that start later in life and maybe don't have the physical foundations that like lifelong athletes do. I want to follow up on something you mentioned, which is how you deal with a situation. And this happens a lot when the genders are sparring against each other, but also happens when large goons are sparring with smaller people. So like, I know how we deal with these situations at, at my gym, but when you have a situation where a goon guy gets caught in an arm bar or a technical triangle choke by a, by, by a woman, and does something nefarious to beast his way out? Like, how do you how do you address that situation as a coach? Oh, the old-fashioned way. <laughs> <laughs> I have no tolerance for uh, for any of that stuff. Uh, I, I will three times a week give a talk at my Nogi class about 
you know, being a goon, not opening up during training, uh, training dangerously. If you don't know, if you're, uh, if you attack a leg lock and somebody gets hurt, it's always the attacker's fault. I don't care. If you don't know the threshold of your leg lock, you shouldn't do them. Regardless if the guy taps or not, let go. You know how far, uh, you know, if you don't know how far it should go, then, then you should let go. So, um, yeah, to, so to answer your question, yeah, if, if there's a guy with a tremendous ego, um, I'll usually ask him to roll and then uh, and help him out a little bit. And uh, and if I'm, you know, if I'm, whatever, if I'm not feeling well that day, I'll just have, uh, you know, one of my students do it for me. Um, but, yeah, I, I'll, you know, I'll spend five minutes with an elbow in somebody's face if they're, uh, if I feel like they need to be calmed down a little bit. I have very, I almost no tolerance for that stuff. Yeah. So help him out in the Charlie Murphy Chappelle show sense of we just yes, gave him some help. That's exactly where that reference is from. So yeah, we help him out a little bit, um, see the error of their ways. And honestly, it doesn't happen too often uh, where I'm at now. Um, I, I don't put up with that garbage uh, at all. I want everybody to, uh, to feel safe in a training environment. It's really important to me. Yeah, and if, if you do give those speeches, I, I do think an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so if you're constantly giving those speeches about training safely, you would expect that it would be a rare occurrence when you would have to to go old school. Yeah. And so I'm glad to hear that that's your experience. It's not just training safely, but training respectfully. You know, um, you know, I think the safety comes from the respect. If you respect your partner, you're not going to try to do things to injure them. Mm-hmm. Um and, and don't train with you, you know, try to avoid, we all have a little bit of an ego, you know, and sometimes you don't want to tap and, and, and there's, and I get it, you know what I mean? Like, I, you know, sometimes like I start rolling a little more physical than I should because I'm just not feeling that, that smooth that day and, uh, and it's my ego and I'll, you know, I'll call myself out on it sometimes. So, um, yeah, it happens and we just try to avoid it and, and acknowledge it and, uh, and, and prevent it when we can. What does your typical training week look like, and how do you, how, like, I'm I'm curious about how you balance your coaching with your with your training for your own purposes. So it's slightly less than when I was uh, still fighting MMA. Um, I usually Monday, Wednesday, Friday I teach wrestling at nine thirty, so uh, I'm always up at seven each day. Um, get up, eat, relax, go teach. I usually try to um, uh, I'll do the the warm up and the drilling warm up coach the technique and then I'll wrestle uh, live at the end at least one or two days a week with the class while that's going on uh, usually right after that I'll have like either a private lesson um, and then I jump right into BJJ uh, at least three or four days a week um, where you know that's not my class so I'm, I'm you know I'm a student and I'm learning and getting the rolling in it's like eat sleep come back teach a private lesson and uh, I either have to run sparring for the pro guys, or I teach nogi three days a week. And obviously, uh, you know, I have an hour and a half class, so it's forty-five minutes of technique and forty-five minutes straight rolling. Um, so I'll roll that whole time. I'll fit strength and conditioning in somewhere, and I try to spar at least once a week, uh, like full kickboxing. So I'm curious: is there anything that I haven't asked about that you really wish I would have asked about, or something that uh, you think people ought to know about you that maybe they don't? I don't know, man. I, you know, <laughs> I've had like. I feel like I've had several lives in the, uh, since I've been here, but um, I don't know. I'm just excited where martial arts is going in general. Um, 
it's never ending, uh, especially BJJ is never ending. And, and there's cool, you know, the new um, like uh, EBI rules is really like making submission grappling cool. And there's a lot of super fight tournaments, and it's it, it's cool, man. I, I you know I really I, I especially since it's like the one thing I you know I'm really training more now. I'm really like digging where BJJ is going. I'd like to see the um, I'd like to see some rule changes in the IBJJF and some sort of changes in the way they handle business in general. I like to get back. I posted something today, you know, make jujitsu violent again, and uh, I just like to get to the to the combat. You know, the essence of combat. Um, I think has, has evaded the sport a little bit, and it's because of the way points are scored. Um, I think they should reward if you get, you know. If you get somebody in a turtle position, I think you should be rewarded points for that. Because guess what? If that's a real fight, you're not winning the fight there. Um, you're, you're losing um, if you turtle up and somebody gets gets behind you, and they don't necessarily have to put hooks in. But I think that would speed up the game tremendously. And uh, I'd like to see reaps allowed at black belt level, and you should be able. To, if you're not a black belt, you can't handle heel hooks. I, I don't think you're a black belt. I want to talk to you guys about Cageside Fight Company for a second. I've been buying from Cageside for more than six years, and about 99% of the gear that I use is from Cageside. That's not because other companies don't make good stuff. They do. It's just that Cageside offers the highest quality products at the best value and, no joke, the best customer service I've ever experienced in my life. So whether you're looking for shin pads, whether you're looking for Thai gear, whether you're looking for Brazilian jiu-jitsu gis or Valetudo shorts, whether you're looking for the coolest t-shirts around, check out Cageside.com or come into their fight shop at one two four lotta road right in durham north carolina you won't be sorry another thing i want to mention about cage side is they do more to support local fighters and local brazilian jiu-jitsu competitors than just about anybody else and so we've got to support the people that support us check out cage side fight company 124 lotta road in durham north carolina or online at cageside.com so that's our show for the week um, my thanks to my guest eric uresk called in all the way from thailand 11 hours ahead so thanks a lot i've learned a lot from eric both about nutrition about training methodology about how grappling interplays with striking and i hope that you uh, learned some things and enjoyed that as well we'll be back next week with a special guest who is a seventh degree coral belt in brazilian jiu-jitsu somebody that really you know you talk you heard eric talk about the old school fight mentality and making jiu-jitsu uh an effective fighting martial art and 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 there is no one that uh, is going to be more qualified than my next guest next week, so I'm really excited to talk to you all about that. So thank you all for listening. My name is Jeff Shaw. This is Dirty White Belt Radio. You can check us out online at uh, dirtywhitebelt.com. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. You can also always hear the replay of these shows at whupfm.org. Uh, we're going to get on out of here. So just a reminder, uh, register for U.S. Grappling December 10th, U.S. Grappling Richmond submission only. They come back to Raleigh in January for a points tournament. And so this is Dirty White Belt Radio. My name is Jeff Shaw. Thank you again for listening.